Andre Dawson, Hall of Famer from the Chicago Cubs, and you're listening to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast featuring everybody's favorite coach, Coach Manaman. Follow him on Twitter at Coach Manaman. This podcast is produced on Anchor, where you can record, edit, and publish all from your smartphone. You can find the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcast platforms. Stepping to the batter's box. Welcome Dubuque area baseball fans. Today we have a different type of episode for you. I hope you leave this episode feeling inspired. We have an inspirational guest here that moved me and I'm sure he will move you as well. The Dubuque area baseball podcast proudly welcomes two-time cancer survivor before the age of 27, inspirational speaker, Podcast host of Stage 4, Two on Stage, former Beckman Catholic standout catcher, Coach Tom Jink Jr.'s assistant coach, former college umpire, and current Team of Dreams umpire. The Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast welcomes Dylan Slattery to the show. Dylan, I think I covered everything there, but what would you like to tell us about yourself so the audience knows a little bit more about you before we start talking about Dubuque area baseball? Yeah, first off, thanks, Nick, for having me on the show. Uh, Very grateful for the opportunity. Just to really highlight, I mean, the game of baseball, as we're going to get into, for me, it goes way beyond the game. And so, so much of what I love about the game is the people that I've got to spend those years with on the field and developing relationships with. And, you know, for me, Beckman baseball has really developed a brotherhood where like in preparation for this interview, I got to call on guys that were playing back in the eighties and nineties and they never hesitate. They pick up the phone and they say, Hey, what can I do for you? How can I help you? And anytime it comes to bragging about Coach Jenk, they're all about it. So as far as who I am, you know, I come from a long line of uh, advocates for the game of baseball. Uh, I think what you're doing with the podcast as far as expanding that reach is pretty awesome. Uh, and as far as the impact that it can have, it's not really even about us. It's about the impact that we can have on those coaches, the players that are listening to us maybe pick up a few things on what we would have done differently in our careers and what we've learned just from playing the game in general. But I'm a firm believer that the lessons of baseball go far beyond the field. And if we buy into the narrative that our circumstances control us, they will. But the teams and the players that focus on what they can control and believe that they can earn that next bounce or that next 50-50 call by the amount of effort and focus that they put towards the present moment, more often than not, because of that work work ethic and the belief behind it, they're going to earn that next call. And so that's that's ultimately what I'm here for is to show you that this game is way beyond wins and losses. I could not be more excited to have you on, Dylan. This actually is an audience-driven episode. People on the Dubuque Area Baseball fod, uh, podcast page 
Instagram and Coach Manaman on Twitter actually reached out to me and said, you need to do an episode on Beckman Catholic. And at that time, I actually, Dylan reached out to me about wanting to be a guest on the show and I researched him and I did some background and I could not think of a better person to talk about Beckman Catholic baseball than Dylan. Now, Dylan, you do a podcast of your own. Can you plug the name real quick one time before I get into my first question? Yeah, so it's called Stage 4 to Onstage and really what we focus on is adversity, mindset and resilience uh, and so our our goal is to empower resilience and it's all based on this fact that i believe adversity is a universal experience that can not only unite us but transform us into the people teams and organizations that we are meant to become and there's no better game to do that than the game of baseball so much failure so much adver- adversity i did find your podcast podcasts on Spotify and I did listen to two of them. I listened to the Carson King episode and I also listened to the Kent Stack episode. I do plan on listening to more, but what advice and lifelong lessons did you get from interviewing those two? And after my audience goes and listens to those podcasts of stage four, two on stage, what do you think they'll pull from those two episodes? So, uh, as I mentioned, I've been very fortunate, and I think one of the biggest things that baseball has allowed me to do is network with people that I normally wouldn't have had access to. Same is true with the podcast. I'm sure you're experiencing that as well. Uh, Ken Stock actually works with my mom at Community Savings Bank, and so um, my junior or senior year, at that point, he was a baseball guy to me, and so... Uh, I took some hitting lessons from him and and got to know him pretty well. He's become a father figure of sorts, but the movie is actually based on his story. uh, And the podcast is highlighting that movie called The Final Season. So Norway, uh, they went through a, a merger where they got combined with a larger school. And so the movie is all about this final season where Kent Stock takes over for one of the legendary coaches, uh, Van Scoy, uh, who's a very prominent name in, in Iowa baseball. And it's kind of deemed as like this throwaway season where there's not going to be another one. So why even try? Uh, they talked about not even having a team for that final season. And so Kent Stock comes in. He's fresh out of college, uh, rambunctious coach, young guy. And uh, they he just gets the team to believe in the in the cause and and what he does for them is is really puts things into perspective and so the takeaway that you're going to have from that episode and the scene is so vivid in my mind I can see it in the movie is when he walks into the locker room leading up to the the championship game of the final season he walks into the locker room with all the guys sitting there and he says when you step on that field you're not just playing for yourselves you're playing for every person who's ever worn that jersey. So ask yourself one question. How do you want to be remembered? And so for me, that was the question that changed my perspective when I was battling cancer. Uh, I was really, really struggling. And uh, it became a fight to earn that one last chapter to, to write the ending of the story. And, and it was, how do I want my brothers to remember me? I'm the oldest of four boys. And, uh, my three younger brothers looked up, look up to me like 
like a like a father figure and uh, i felt like i had let them down in years leading up to that moment and so uh, i just wanted one more chapter to rewrite the ending of the story so that i could dictate how i was going to be remembered so that's my big takeaway from ken stock um carson king the big thing there is is uh not to use uh the cheesy play on words but kindness is king and uh he'll tell you the same thing small acts of kindness matter and now more than ever, you see those small acts of kindness, whether it's, you know, ordering takeout from a local restaurant or things of that nature. There's so many people stepping up in small ways. Um, but one of my mentors always used to say, small hinges swing big doors. And so those small changes, those small acts of kindness can create ripple effects and create big changes. And more oftentimes than not, we don't even see the end, the end game of that right like they're so far away from us but because that one small act of kindness started that ripple effect uh, it just continues and continues to make an impact over time i i agree with you on that i i did watch the final season last night not to prepare for this just because i've been trapped in my house i've been looking for things to do the final season has made its way onto my radar of baseball movies that I would watch leading up to the season. And a couple interesting facts about that movie is Jim Van Scoy, he actually um, started a perfect game right when I started playing high school baseball. And I was actually on the first, it was a fall league team. Spring baseball wasn't popular back then. Um, I played fall baseball that Norway stadium or that Norway field was actually my home field. And one thing I love about the movie and Beckman Catholic people will get this. Did it, did you recognize the picture of Cedar Rapids Jefferson on their last game? Uh, it was a Martin brother, right? It was Billy Martin who I used to play with uh, back in the day. Dyersville Catholic Beckman legend. Billy Martin is the pitcher that ends up, ends up losing the game. Big, tall left-hander there. Now, when I was researching you, Dylan, I did see that you do some speaking engagements. You, you went on a speaking tour here, and you actually spoke to the Iowa men's basketball team. Now, how did that come about? Did they reach out to you, or did you reach out to them? And then when you hear that you're going to go speak to them. What message do you give to them as you speak? Yeah, so that's kind of a full circle moment where um, through my cancer journey, I spent four weeks at the uh, ICU at the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics down in Iowa City. And uh, a good friend of mine, he's actually now the boys uh, basketball coach at Beckman, Michael Maloney. He was a manager for the team at Iowa. And so when I was sick, he actually reached out to the team. And so at that point, it was like Mike Gazelle, Adam Woodbury, Aaron White, and Gabe Olashaney. And so it was one of my worst days. So just to give you an idea of what that looked like, <clears throat> every day I would do three rounds of treatment. So every eight hours, I was receiving treatment uh, for as many as I could take over the course of four different weeks. And I was really struggling. There was there was a couple moments where one night I woke up and there was six to eight doctors surrounding me uh, waiting for me to completely flatline because I was getting close to that point. Uh, my, my heart rate would just drop on a dime. And that was one of the side effects of the treatment regimen that I was on. And so he reached out to those guys and uh, 
all of a sudden it was like one of my worst days. I could hardly keep my eyes open. Uh, I was really struggling to keep any food down or anything like that. And all of a sudden I see these four guys and three of them had to duck. Uh, Mike Gazelle wasn't that tall, so he didn't have to duck coming out of the elevator. But uh, it was really like, you know, we think about and we see the wave every Saturday for the football team. But I don't think people even realize what an impact that can have just to know that you're not alone and the strength that you can get from someone else uh, just by proximity and their energy that they bring into the room with you. The amount of energy that gets sent into that hospital from the 70,000 fans in Kinnick Stadium uh, is just unbelievable. And that's one of the things that I've learned uh, from my cancer experience, but also like Coach Jenk was one of the best at just leading with energy and passion is that you can make a difference just by how you show up. And so um, that was exactly the impact that they had on me that day. They, uh, they gave me the kick that I needed to make it through that week, and um, I, I never forgot it. So <clears throat> I got to return the favor. Uh, Fran's son, Patrick, uh, is a cancer survivor as well. So it was like a no-brainer. Um, it was a perfect fit. And then um, – I got to go in and speak to them before their game against Iowa State, which is the same game where Cordell Pemzo came back. So this wasn't this past season, but the season before. Uh, he came back, and they kind of blew the doors off Iowa State at uh, Carver-Hawkeye. But uh, I got to give the pregame speech, and the the concept, whether I'm talking to Iowa basketball or like last year, it was a year ago today, I spoke to Clark Baseball, and the message was the same. It's – If we want to turn moments of greatness into a tradition of excellence, it starts with the fundamentals in the present moment. So for Iowa basketball, it was let's win possession by possession every day. What, how can we break it down into the smallest measurable moment in order to break that big moment in trying to get a win down to the, to the very present. So possession by possession, being smart with the ball, Uh, executing the offense, and then on defense, communicating and playing team defense. Then when I go and and spoke to Clark Baseball, one of the things that we talk about is winning every, you know, winning, winning pitches. You know, let's focus in the present moment. We can't, we can't go back and change the fact that a pitch that was three inches off the outside of the plate just got called a strike. What we can change is how we approach this pitch in front of us right now. And so if you want a different outcome, we have to change our level of focus uh, and our intentionality in the present moment, but also in our preparation. That was the big message to them. Um, and I think one of the common misconceptions is this idea around being a gamer. I think being a gamer is a cop-out, uh, to be honest with you. And, like, if you look at the best of the best, and going back to that tradition of excellence, the best of the best consistently dominate. There's no gamer mentality. They consistently dominate. And so tradition is built by being consistently dominant. And so, you know, Iowa basketball, to stay on that subject, they took a big step forward uh, this year in the face of adversity, you know, seven, eight scholarship guys. um, And they really exceeded expectations in a lot of ways. And it was because they didn't focus on what they didn't have. They focused on the present moment and uh, executing in that moment. And so we can't start to close the gap uh, to where we want to go if we haven't really taken 
an honest assessment of where we're at today. And that's a big part of it is taking ownership. Yeah, there's so much I want to comment there. Uh, You talked about how being a gamer is a cop out. I I know you regularly listen to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast, and I just think of players that we talk about on here quite a bit. We talk about Jake Herman, Jacob Kerman, my fault, and we talk about Sam Link, and we talk about Riley McCarron. And those were three kids that we've coached that were the hardest working kids in practice, but were always the best players on the field. So they weren't just people that showed up at game time and were ready to play. They were people that were putting in all the hard work in practice as well. I uh, have been using your picture of you speaking to Iowa with with Garza in the forefront because I know if people see Iowa basketball, they're they're tuned to uh, listen a little bit more. But what um, feedback did you get from the players? And you already mentioned Clark University. I was going to follow up with that as well. But what feedback did you get from the staff? What feedback did you get uh, from the players uh, after you were done speaking to them? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting, you know, because so much of the the adversity that I go through is is are the teaching points that I I formulate uh, the keynote or, you know, whatever I'm doing with the team around. And so it's easy for them to relate and see like this guy in front of us is 28 years old. Now he was 22 when he was diagnosed with cancer the first time, like they can relate to me because they're going through and, and dealing with some of the same adversities that I went through as a 22 year old. So it's not that there's not that many uh, moments of separation between the two of us, but I think, one of the things that they take away is this idea around just taking responsibility. I think so much of our culture now is like copping out and blaming our circumstances. And um, one of the concepts that I always, always touch on is this idea of just because we can explain something doesn't excuse us from correcting our activities around it to make, to create that different outcome. You know, we can explain why this, that, or the other thing happened, but it doesn't excuse us from moving forward. And so um, the other thing is like, it's easy to set goals, but if you don't take into account where you're at today and then take a step back and say, what is that gap between where I'm at now and where I want to be? You're going to have an unrealistic idea of what it's going to take and you're probably going to fold at the first sign of resistance because that, because you have this unrealistic idea of what it's going to take. The best of the best, I mean, you look at, you know, it's, it's a shame what happened with Kobe Bryant, but like what he does in his Mamba mentality, when you come hard at him, he comes 10 times harder at you. He's not expecting you to fold because he dunks on you the first time. You know, you dig your heels in. And the next thing you know, they're just going all out at each other. And that's the mentality you got to have is for every time you come at me, I'm going 10 times harder right back at you. Now, three things before we start talking here about baseball and, and Beckman baseball here. 
I can tell you that Fran McCaffrey did his best job coaching this year. They uh, lost Bohannon. They weren't expected to do anything. Holy cow, did they surprise a lot of people uh, in the Big Ten. And Iowa fans would be the first to admit they didn't expect too much from them. I actually met Fran McCaffrey last year. I was in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, attending the Final Four, and I saw him at the Fan Fest. And I went and asked to take a picture with him, and I had just gotten the new iPhone. And him and I got ready to take a selfie, and I actually hit the wrong button twice to actually shut off my phone instead of actually take the picture. And uh, he was a trooper. I was thinking he he would be annoyed, but I can tell you that the second half of that Michigan State game, they could have used a talking from you because uh, Izzo did some talking with the referees there and totally changed how the game was called, but they could have used you to give them a motivational speak there because Michigan State took it to them the to the second half here. Now, you might be asking yourself, this is a baseball podcast, why do we have Dylan Slattery on this episode? Well, Dylan, before we talk about Beckman Catholic Baseball, we've already talked about one of the two movies I did want to mention with you, the final season, that are close to Dubuque area people's hearts. The other movie is The Field of Dreams. Now, when you watch The Field of Dreams, and you've had some experiences at the Team of Dream events as an umpire, what inspiration do you pull from The Field of Dreams when you watch it? Yeah, so uh, another huge part of my story is the fact that I lost my father to suicide a month before I was born. And so the scene in the movie where uh, he says, hey, dad, want to have a catch? Like that gets me every single time. I don't cry very often. Usually it's around uh, two things, my dad and Coach Jank. When I think about those two guys, those are the moments that will make me uh, shed a tear. But uh, when I think about, because I never got to meet my dad, so like I'd give anything to have a catch with my dad. And uh, I'm not married and I don't have kids yet, but when I do, I, I so look forward to those moments of playing catch in the backyard and you know seeing them get their first hit and things like that and just celebrating those small wins and teaching them a love for the game. I think that's a lost art in these days is – just a love and passion for the game. Early on, it's not about wins and losses. It's about teaching an appreciation and just a pure love for the game and the joy that comes with it. Yeah, that's it's such a phenomenal movie. And that was another movie that I watch regularly getting ready for the upcoming season. And that's been a movie when I do my Around the Horn section with the other coaches that they often say is their favorite one. Now, you have done some umpiring for the Team of Dream events, which is the event where Hall of Famers, celebrities, baseball players come from all over the United States, all over Major League Baseball, and play a celebrity softball game. There's a lot of different events around this. Now, this was a question that I had, but it also came from a co-host of the show, Chad Crable. But what are some of your favorite players or celebrities that you have met while the event Team of Dreams was taking place? Yeah, Chad's a great guy, and uh, I've gotten to know him pretty well over the years. He's a ghost player, but also uh, he he was the catcher for Key West. So uh, my journey into umpiring, which eventually led me to the field of dreams, um, 
is pretty interesting. Like I coached for, I coached with coach Jenk for five years. So I played for him on varsity for two years, coached with him for five. The first three of those years we went to the, to the state tournament. Um, and then ironically, or however you want to say this, um, within a month of me being declared no evidence of my own cancer, Coach Jenk was diagnosed with stage four glioblastoma and we lost him 11 months later. And so <clears throat> since I was cancer deemed cancer free at that point, I was working full time again for the first time in, in years. And it was just one of those things where coaching wasn't the same uh, without Coach Jenk in the dugout. And so um, between working full time and, uh, and other circumstances, it was it seemed like a natural pivot for me to, to go into umpiring, you know, as a catcher. Um, most people will tell you, I call a good strike zone. Uh, you'll have a few people that would argue against that. Um, yipe, maybe specifically, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I started umpiring in, um, in the semi-pro leagues and then, worked my way into high school. I've done quite a bit with, with perfect game, as we mentioned earlier. And then, um, because I got in with those guys and the semi pro guys, uh, I got asked in 2016 to umpire the team of dreams game. And, and it was, um, it was unbelievable. Like my first year was the year that Johnny bench was out there and somehow, uh, I ended up behind home plate and so it was it was me and Johnny Bench for 2 hours and he reminded me so much of my grandfather who was the one that really taught me the game of baseball and he was another catcher so like I have all these um ties with with former catchers that taught me the game and um it's funny on on the road to my first baseball practice ever uh, I remember having a conversation with my mom because this kid at daycare who was a year older than me said he was like prepping me for my first practice. And he said, whatever you do, you just don't want to play catcher. It's dirty. You get hurt. The ball hits you. Um, it's just you don't want to do it. And so that was my only mindset going into my first practice. I ended up being a catcher basically my whole career. So it's kind of funny how that works out. And so just to be able to spend two hours with Johnny Bench, um, it was unbelievable. Just the amount of joy that he had and, and it truly just reminded me that, um, you know, age is just a number. And he, he just had this inherent sense of joy where you could tell, even though he couldn't play anymore, he just loved being out on the field. And that's something that I can definitely relate to. Um, we're as young as we feel, but each and every moment is precious. And you could tell that he was appre appreciating that moment. Yeah, I've been to all of the Team of Dreams events except for the one that got rained out and was held in a gym. And Johnny Bench was was hilarious. He uh, was wearing a mic similar to the one that you're wearing now. And everything he was saying was projected on the loudspeakers and and he was hilarious with the kids, the fans, the players, and I was glad that that they decided to to mic him up. Now, you said Johnny Bench was your all-time favorite. What about some of the celebrities that have come to the event, some some movie stars that have made some appearance 
Does any of them stand out as being great people that you had a chance to be involved with? Well, it was pretty cool last year to be able to spend time and get some photos with the guys from the Sandlot, but I was definitely not impressed with their ability on the field. (laughs) 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 They were awful. But um, going back to the players, I think I'd touch on three more, and they're Ozzie Smith, Wade Boggs, and Steve Carlton. They're the regulars. They come every year. But because of that, I've started to build relationships with them. Again, it, like for me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, all about relationships anyway. But when it comes to, to baseball, it, like every year I come back and it's like, oh, hey. And they're like, hey, Dylan, how's it going? You know, we're on a first name basis. We're having conversations way beyond the game of baseball. Somehow last year, Steve Carlton and I got talking about um, like um, – Oh, envisioning the future and like seeing yourself as successful and um, manifestation and quantum physics. He was he he just wanted to talk about it. So I listened to it and we had a great conversation around that and how he used those concepts of visualization as a player. And I think just being able to see yourself as successful and regardless of what you're doing is is so key because um, mental reps are just as important as as physical reps in a lot of cases. And so if even like in times like these where we're quarantined and we can't get as many reps in on the base, on the baseball field, um, being able to put yourself there mentally and going through those things uh, can be just as important. There's been a lot of studies done on that very thing, but uh, in terms of celebrities, I think I wouldn't be able to do this interview without bringing up Charlie Sheen. <laughs> that, that was definitely one of the more wild things I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw pictures of Charlie. I wondered if he had had a little too much fun before the game even started or if he was just that excited and that giddy to, to be on the field. But he he looked like he was a kid in a candy store out there on the baseball field. So do you know the story behind that whole weekend? I do not know. So it was his birthday weekend. I don't. Um, that that I did re- know it was his birthday. Yes. Yeah. So they presented a birthday cake to him on the mound of the Field of Dreams. I have an epic picture of it, but um, he missed quite a few flights out of Dallas. Um, he was supposed to have a private meet and greet on Saturday night at one of the casinos in Dubuque, and he completely missed all of it. And didn't get into the field of dreams until I think it was around noon, the day of the game, Sunday. And uh, he looked like he was in pretty rough shape. They weren't even sure if he was going to play. And then all of a sudden, you know, he caught a second wind. He got his tiger blood Uh, going. (laughs) Yeah, the tiger blood kicked in and he ended up throwing all seven innings of that uh, of that game. And it was pretty funny, actually. He started out throwing overhanded, which we don't really do in that game because it's all in fun and everybody hits. So um, we had to we had to tell him to like tone it down and back it off. He still threw overhand, but to the point where people could hit it um, because we we're like nobody strikes out in this game, Charlie. You're not racking them up this game, so you either let them hit it or we're going to be here all night. And so. Uh, yeah, that was that was the story with Charlie Sheen. But 
to your point, I've never seen a celebrity as starstruck as he was on the field that night. I was actually uh, umpiring second base, and uh, every inning he would come out and just be like, can you believe this? And he would talk to me and be like, can you believe this? Like, that's Wade Boggs at third base, or like, that's so-and-so. Can you believe this? And so I've, I've never seen a celebrity that was there that starstruck, but you could tell that he was just enjoying the moment, uh, spending time on the field with some of the guys that he grew up watching and idolizing too. So Very true to the movie. People will come, Ray. People will come. Now, I, I've heard some behind-the-scenes stories. I actually experienced them, a couple of them myself, uh, co-hosts of the show, Tyler Soigling tells uh, how he got to sit down and talk baseball with Bill Buckner for about an hour or so that he cherishes to this very day. Al Stoltz, pick and roll Al, got me on the field to meet Jose Canseco, who was a complete jerk to me. Um, I uh, also did have an opportunity on multiple times to meet Ricky Henderson. And Ricky Henderson, the first thing I said to him, he seemed offended, but then he was happy with me. I put my arm around Ricky and I said, Ricky, I get upset when people tell me that you're the greatest leadoff hitter of all time. And he looked at me kind of shocked and I said, it's because you are the greatest baseball player of all time and he opened up to me there but what are some things that you've experienced that you haven't shared yet behind the scenes stuff uh, that happened that people that just attend the game or even hear about the event wouldn't know yeah a lot happens on Steve Carlton's RV that he brings up every year Um, I've gotten to have my first year there he comes up with his son Scott every year and so I've got to know both him and his son. So again, it's, it, it's beyond baseball. It's family at that point. And so I think just being able to get those two different perspectives of what it was like for the son of one of those guys. And then also you get the perspective of one of the most dominant pitchers of all time. I mean, the season that Steve Carlton had, and I think 72, they were the worst team in baseball and he was the best pitcher in baseball by a long shot. And so um, just being able to get some inside scoop on, on that and what it's like. <clears throat> a lot of those guys have interesting perspectives on today's game, um, which, I mean, if you want to get into that, we can, but um, they, they very much, the game has changed. I don't think anybody can argue that. And so it's hard for Steve to watch a game where the pitcher's getting pulled in the fourth, fifth, and sixth inning. Yeah, and some pitchers not even starting, coming in as a starting pitcher in the third or the fourth inning. Dylan, thanks for sharing us, sharing with us all of your experiences. We're going to get into a new segment, which is called the seventh inning stretch, and it is all audience-driven questions, so stay tuned for that. First question of the seventh inning stretch comes from Michelle Duttmeyer. And her question is, what is the most important lesson you learned from Coach Jink and also from baseball in general? Uh, That's a great question. I think the best thing that Coach ever taught me is if you want to build a tradition, you need to know who you are. And if if you want to set the tone on who you are, uh, one of the best things that you can do is is have these mantras and these sayings that you're always reminding 
not only your team, but other people who you are. And so anybody who's been around Beckman baseball for any period of time knows that before we take the field, we always say 21 outs because those are the things that we value most. We don't want to give our outs away. And uh, on the other side of that is we want to be as efficient as possible, you know, hitting the ball, moving runners, things of that nature. Like we don't give outs away and we want to be as efficient as possible, not giving up errors on the field and making our pitchers work harder than they need to. But I think going back to the, uh, you know, the tradition theme is like, you have to know who you are in order to be the best you. If you don't know who who you are, you're just trying to be someone else. But if you know who you are, that's when you can really maximize and play to your strengths. And that's one of the things that Coach Jank taught each and every one of his guys and each and every one of his teams is that you play to your strengths and that's what's going to give you the best chance to win. The next question comes from Robbie Onsetter. And his question is, what made Coach Jink such a great motivator? I had a lot of former players reach out to me about Coach Jenk as a motivator. And um, one of the things that I've learned in life is that typically our quality of life has to do with the quality of questions that we ask ourselves and other people. And so I, don't, I, I like to turn the question back on them. It's like, as you were a player for him, what did you think? And I've got some varying responses, but it all came back to he let the team dictate the success that they were going to have. He never tried to steal the show, um, but he was always there to remind us that the amount of work that we were willing to put in outside of practice, like on our own and as a team, was going to dictate how far we ended up going that season. And so he wasn't a micromanager. He very much let the players um, dictate the success of the season. But in doing so, he created an environment where the players held each other accountable. And I think that's how you create the best and the strongest team. And that's how you create continuity from season to season. Because once you have the blueprint, uh, there's this proverbial torch that gets passed from season to season. And so it's like I said, to open this conversation, I made a few calls this morning to uh, a few of the best to ever do it at Beckman baseball and Nick Ungs and Kurt Wedower. And they picked up the phone right away. It's like, it's not because I'm some special somebody. They do the same thing for anybody else who ever put on the Jersey. And it's because they have that in common. It's that Beckman brotherhood, it seems like, and also that whole back to the final season, Norway uh, representing everybody that's ever worn that jersey and having everybody's back that has worn that jersey. Now, we also did have two questions come in from a sometimes co-host of the show, Chad Crable. I think you've already touched upon this, but maybe it's somebody different. Who is your favorite Hall of Famer that you've ever met that came to the Team of Dream events? Yeah, it was probably Johnny Bench. I think the the other one that I really uh, liked because it was closer to me in terms of who I grew up watching was Pudge Rodriguez. Again, another catcher, but a guy that I, I grew up watching and just admiring. He wasn't one of the biggest things that we always hear as players is we're not big enough or not strong enough or this, that, and the other thing. And uh, I, 
I can send you the picture. I got a few inches on Pudge Rodriguez. So oh, I saw size, it, yeah. Size, it's not size that's holding you back. So if you're listening to this uh, podcast and you're uh, an up-and-coming player, whether little leagues or high school or whatever, uh, don't let anybody tell you that you're too small because some of the best to ever do it weren't that big. Even some of the Hall of Famers that you see out there, they're not big guys. It's it's surprising when you see them in person because I was just as big, if not bigger, than most of them. I think the only one that I met that was bigger than me was uh, Frank Thomas, and he towered over everybody that was there. And then the last question that came in from... Mr. Big Shot Hollywood, Chad Crable of American Pickers is, I did see it was on your bucket list to try to make every single Major League Baseball stadium. Of the stadiums you've been to so far, what has been your favorite? Yeah, I've been to 11. Um, I've, I'm very partial to Wrigley Field. I've been going there since I was... Uh, four or five years old. And again, it goes back to the people that you're there with. Um, you know, my grandpa started taking me at that young age. And so that was that bond that we had. And that's what formed my love of the game. But um, I just have a, a special love and appreciation for tradition and that old school feel. So I've never been to Boston, but I want to get there. Um, and some of the other ones that I, I, I really want to get to um, Boston, uh, Camden Yards, and uh, the San Francisco Giants field. Um, just because the other thing that I really like about the game, and um, especially as a, a Beckman player, you know, we got that corner out in left center, uh, triples alley. Uh, y- you never know what you're going to get when you come to the ball field. And so, you know, those, those intricacies of the fields and how they're laid out just adds another dynamic that I think really just makes the game of baseball beautiful. One of the games, and this is probably not a stadium that anybody's, it's very high on anybody's bucket list, but um, Derek Jeter was my favorite player growing up. And so the first time I ever got to see Derek Jeter play was at Wrigley Field. It was Roger Clemens versus Kerry Wood. Roger Clemens was going for his 300th win. And uh, I think it was Mark Grudzelanek hit a go-ahead home run in like the seventh or the eighth inning to put the Cubs ahead. And Kerry Wood ended up getting his 50th career win that day. But um, you never know what you're going to see when you come to the ball field. And that day was the day there was a a little pop-up in front of home plate. And Michael Barrett, Aramis Ramirez, and the first baseman for the Cubs at that point was Hesop Choi. Mm-hmm. He was an up-and-coming uh, Korean first baseman. Yeah, never and they collided. Out. They collided, and he stopped Choi uh, literally passed out on the field. He was knocked out. And I was with my grandpa at Wrigley Field, and we watched. Um, there's, like, those fences in, in right field along the streets, and they coiled up those fences. They, they raised up, and in comes an ambulance off of uh, Sheffield Avenue. Down the down the right field line, picks Hesop Choi up off the field, back down the right field line, and 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 out. And my grand my grandfather goes, I think that's the only time I've ever seen an ambulance come onto Wrigley Field, and so I'll never forget that game for a lot of reasons. And uh, I got to see Derek Jeter play in his final season 
down in Tampa Bay. And wouldn't you know it, uh, there was two triples in the same inning, which you don't see very often in a major league game, and also a triple play. So mm. it, It's awesome when you go to baseball games. You, you really don't know what, you, what you're going to experience. Um, I shared on a previous podcast that I was at a Cubs game when they traded for Fred McGriff to to make the um, the pennant run back a long time ago. I need to put this in the contract for all guests that come on the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. Yes, I do have a contract. No Derek Jeter stories. All right? I love Derek Jeter, but he absolutely killed my Oakland A's and a player not sliding, who I'm not also going to mention on this podcast. But every time I hear his name, I always think back to that that play in the playoffs. But to follow up with your stadium suggestions, um, uh, San Francisco, I've never been there. Uh, fantastic. Um, from what people say, there's three that people always tell me that you have to see. Uh, PNC Park in Pittsburgh is on the list. Have you been there? No, nope, nope, that, that was going to be the other one that I named if I named one more. Yep, <laughs> that one and Camden Yards and then also the Giant Stadium are the three that people people say you need to attend. Now, I can tell you that I've been to Fenway Park in Boston. If you go, you have to sit on top of the Green Monster. Greatest experience I've ever had during a, a baseball game. If you want to do that, you got to sign up for the Green Monster Club. It is completely free. They do not release the tickets at the start of the season. It's in very small increments. You can do it fairly cheap if you see them playing a crappy team and the Red Sox are not very good and it's in the middle of the week. You can get tickets for fairly cheap to sit in in the Green Monster area of that. Dylan, it's been great having you on for the uh, newest segment, which is the seventh inning stretch, which is audience-guided questions. Next, we are going to talk about, we're going to pay our respects to Coach Tom Jink Jr. and also talk about the great history of Beckman Catholic Baseball. The Jink family is very close to not only people in the Beckman Catholic baseball community, but also the Dubuque area baseball community. Now, Coach Slattery, Dylan Slattery, what are some of your greatest experiences playing for Coach Tom Jink Jr.? And then also, what were some of your greatest coaching experiences with Tom Jink Jr.? Yeah, I I think... Part of the reason why I have such a, I believe, interesting perspective when it comes from uh, playing for and then coaching with is I actually got to play for Coach Jenk um, while his father was still on the staff. So for those people who may not be as familiar with um, Beckman baseball, his dad was on the staff for I think over 20 years uh, and he was a former catcher. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, he actually got drafted by the Cubs, but blew out his knee before he reported. And so uh, his career back then, I mean, you blow out your knee or your elbow and you're done, especially as a catcher blowing out your knee. Uh, the surgery technologies just weren't there. But um, so some of my greatest experiences were before I even took the field 
uh, as a varsity player for Beckman. And, and that was because I was a catcher and I got to sit on the bucket next to coach Tom Jenks senior and, you know, him and junior would go back and forth talking about playing out different scenarios in the dugout. And then you got Fred Martin. So between those three guys, I mean, they've forgotten more about the game than you and I will ever know. And so I, uh, to be able to sit in the dugout and just be able to be a sponge and soak up all that knowledge um, in different um, scenarios, it put me so much further ahead. And, you know, I mentioned those mental reps earlier. I think that was one of the best things I could have ever done was I played so many games out in my head sitting next to those guys that when I took the field, I was on the exact same page as they were at all times there was never any question about what we were doing because we had already we played out these scenarios so many other times and so i think it's interesting so many parts of my story even at such a young age have come full circle because um when his dad passed i was on the staff and so one of the things that his his dad tom jang senior was known for was he would call pitches from the dugout uh sitting on his bucket and um, Coach Jenk Jr., when his dad passed away, gave me his dad's jacket. And so it had his number on it. And it was kind of like a passing of the torch where, um, at least the way I interpreted it, it was like, it's your turn to step up. It's just like anything else in the program. It's always next man up. And he had been prepping me as a player and as a coach for that moment. And so, you know, I got to call pitches for guys like Connor Closerman and Nate Stagger and, and, and guys like that. And it wasn't a matter of pride or anything, you know, it was just, we always wanted to be on the same page with everything we were doing. And, and um, it was just a beautiful, beautiful thing to be able to um, really in, in so many ways, all we ever wanted to do as players was make coach proud. So um, that was one of the biggest things for me. And then, you know, as a player, just the amount of success, winning is so much more fun than losing. So um, being able to kind of change the tide as, as a, my senior year, we, uh, we were coming off one of our worst seasons in, in coach Jenks career. We were 500 my junior year. And um I think the biggest lesson from that was we, we just weren't a cohesive group. And so we kind of took that by the horns and uh, started hanging out a lot more together as a team and as brothers. And uh, it made all the difference. You know, we were when things got tough, we didn't start playing the blame game. And I think you see that a lot of times where when teams aren't close, it turns into he said, she said, when teams are tight knit it doesn't matter what happens, they stay together. And so um, my senior year, we were able to, uh, there was really no expectations for us. Um, and we ended up going to the state finals. <clears throat> and so that kind of revitalized things in a lot of ways. And so we just kept the momentum going. And again, you pass that torch. And so guys like Eric D'Souza and Isaac Willembring passed the torch down to guys like Nate Stagger and Connor Klosterman and, and the guys just fall right in place. But um, I was talking to Nick Ungs this morning and uh, 
you know, things, things definitely change over the years. But uh, one of the things I asked him, because as a player, I never really appreciated this, or maybe I didn't understand it, but there's so much power in this. So one of the things that we typically do at Beckman is there's usually one freshman that at least gets to suit up on varsity. And usually he's the best player in the grade. But um, one of the things that I didn't really understand how powerful it really was is that guy is typically the garbage guy. And so um, they're responsible for cleaning up the bus on the road trips and things like that. And so it's a very, very humbling experience for the best player in their grade to be able to, you know, to get on his knees and clean out underneath every seat. And believe me, the guy, the older upperclassmen, at least in the beginning of the season, aren't all that nice to him about leaving trash behind there. They don't pick up after themselves. And it's kind of this like breaking in period where, you know, the older guys humble the newer guys so that they continue with that tradition down the line to say, Hey, just because you're the biggest fish in your small pond doesn't mean you're a big fish in this bigger, bigger lake. And so um, that's one of the things that I never really understood as a player. But now looking back, I think there's a lot of power in it in that as a senior, if you are that best player, you understand what it's like to have to clean up underneath all the bus seats after everybody's packed their cars up and, and is going home and things like that. And so you start to appreciate the little things and maybe you're a little bit nicer to the next guy, you know, coming down the line. Um, but I think just little things like that um, are stories where, you know, the bus ride home were always a lot of fun more so after wins than losses. One of the things that Nick Ung shared with me was that um, back in their day, they would uh, they had this thing called Wacky Waters, which was oh, like a yeah. It was an outdoor it was an outdoor water park, but um, the bonsai would, was the name of their big slide. So they would uh, they would fill up these water jugs, and if if and only if they won, on the way home when the bus was flying down the highway, the guys in the front would splash water with all the windows mm-hmm. down all the way back to the bus. And so they'd throw wind uh, water out the windows up on the bus so that it would splash in on all the other guys. And so it kind of created this fun, wacky waters environment where um, if they won, they got to celebrate. And so um, one of the recurring things that I always heard from, from players is that coach Jenk always had a way of making it fun. And so it was always fun. Typically practices were more laid back, but part of the reason was, and, and, and Nick shared this with me too, was that he trusted that you were going to get your reps in, um, whether it was playing for the Whitehawks, traveling teams on your own, things of that nature. You were going to do, again, empowering the players to make sure that they did what they needed to do. And so a lot of times our practices were fairly laid back. In fact, he shared a story with me that before they went down to the state tournament one year, um, <clears throat> they had a lot of rain and so they couldn't go outside and practice. And so this was the day before, I think it was the state semifinal game and uh, they couldn't practice outside. And so what they did was they strung the cages out in the, in the gym 
and they played a game of wiffle ball down on the lower level. So some guys would be hitting up top, and then they played a full-on wiffle ball game in the gym the day before uh, one of their biggest games at State. <laughs> and he said they totally blew him out of the water. And, you know, the press guys and in interviews and stuff, they'd ask him, like, what did you guys do yesterday in practice? You guys just came out firing on all cylinders. And they they told him straight up, you know, we played wiffle ball in practice yesterday because it was raining outside. And so it was just little things like that. It seemed like Coach always knew what button to push, whether on a micro level, on a per player level, or a macro level. Like, what does the team need to hear at this point in the season or in this moment that's going to propel them to the next level? A lot of great things there. Uh, that's an amazing story about them passing uh, Coach Jinx's dad's jacket to you. It reminds me of that scene in the final season where they pass the bat on to all of the coaches in the program. And you mentioned Connor Klosterman. I did a Facebook Live Q&A, and a question that I got asked was, who is one player that you respected coaching against? And I, I coach against thousands and thousands of players, and Connor Klosterman was the one name that that came to my came to mind um, and stood right there because he was one guy we could never get out. Great hitter, great kid, great coach, very personable. And I shared stories on how when he would coach or when I would coach a freshman game and he was there watching, he, he would come down to the third base coach's box and we would talk uh, in between innings. Sometimes even even during the inning. But um, I played against Coach Jink. When I was on the varsity staff at Hempstead, I coached against him. But my first time really ever talking to him was at a freshman game when we were playing at the high school. And he came out on the field before the game and him and I talked and we talked for 15 to 25 minutes. And you would have thought that him and I were best friends or you would have thought that him and I had gone back years and years and years by how natural the conversation was and I never realized how funny he was. I we were laughing the whole time and he just was such was such a phenomenal man. I'm glad I had that experience uh before his passing. Now what did the Dubuque area baseball community lose when when he passed? What are some of the great things that we lost uh, with his passing? And how maybe is his legacy being being carried on with his passing? Yeah, <clears throat> that's a great question. And I, I think, you know, the obvious answer is what an advocate for the game of baseball that we lost. Um, to your point, I mean, every interaction that he made, you look at, you know, I was just going through some of the articles today with, in regards to his passing and rival coaches, you know, rival coaches like Roman Hummel, Roman Hummel was one of the best players for our biggest rival as a player. And then as a coach, you know, it would be easy to understand why there would be through all the high tensions uh, over the years where there would be any sort of bitterness there um, or anything like that. But I know Roman really well, just from, you know, umpiring semi-pro and things of that nature uh, Monticello coach, uh, West Delaware's coach, all the coaches in the area, um, teams just, I mean, coaches everywhere, Jerry Rowling, 
and they had some heated heated games in the past and just to see the amount of people that came out and shared stories and just testaments to the man that coach Jenk was and he'd be the first to tell you like he wasn't not perfect he there was bumps in the road and his his coaching career his personal life the whole bit but he never tried to sugarcoat any of that and i think that's how he resonated with so many of his guys is that he never tried to be perfect or never tried to per- portray that he was perfect um and what that allowed was a uh, a level of vulnerability from his players to be able to say, coach, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I need. And that I believe is how he was able to push the right button at the right time is because um, there was never this sense of talking down to it was always on the same level as the player. Now, was there discipline involved? Absolutely. But each and every player knew that it came from a place of love first and then discipline. And I think that's the important thing is guys will do anything for their coach when they know it comes from a place of love. But when you lead from discipline first and then you're the first to take credit for every win and everything that goes good and then cast blame on the team when things go wrong, that's when you're going to start to lose guys. That was never the case with Coach Jenk. He was always the first to deflect uh, you know, responsibility when the wins came and take responsibility when the losses came. And I think that's what you see in a lot of the great coaches. I think one of the greatest baseball stories, not only in the Dubuque area, but also in the history of baseball, would have to be that season, his last season, where his team won the state championship and he was watching the game from the press box, the announcer's booth, and knowing that he had very little time to live and that he got to stick around to see that and to see them play, but then also win a state championship. I I hope there's a movie made about that. I, I don't know how anybody could have read that or watched that or experienced that and not had a had a dry eye during that did you have anything that you could add to that experience that final season for coach jink where they went on to win the state championship yeah that was uh that was an interesting year for me like i said um he was the 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 incident where the stroke set in was um christmas day in 2016 and um, January 2017 was when I was declared no evidence of disease. And uh, I'm going to get a little emotional here, honestly. is like Coach Jenk um, not only coached me through wins and losses on the field, but he was there coaching me through my journey with cancer. And... Um, I remember the year that uh, the year I had my first surgery when I was 22, I was his freshman coach and uh, you know, he always had a sense of humor about him, but he was actually serious when he said, uh, do I need to get someone to help you out? I'm concerned that uh, you're going to rip your scar open, swinging the fungo. And um, I'll never forget that. You know, it was, uh, 
he always just cared so much about his guys. And that last season was tough. It was, uh, it was one of those things where we went through all, all of spring with just this hope that he was going to make it back into the dugout. And, uh, it never happened. And, you know, life, life is interesting when you, uh, when you start to think that the end is near, um, the amount of urgency that comes into your life is unmatched. And the team felt that the team definitely felt it. And so, you know, you talk about what that meant for the program. You could feel the entire season, the amount of energy and intention and just all out work that went into each and every practice and each and every rep and everything just was through the roof from top to bottom. And anybody who was part of the program that year knew it was coming. Absolutely knew it was coming. We had the talent to do it. Um, There was no question about that, but the amount of intentionality behind everything that those guys did, they wanted it and it was not for them. It was for the man who was watching that final game up in the stands because he had given them so much more than we could ever give him. Um, And that was just one small moment. It looked very big on the field and I'm not trying to make their accomplishments small in any way, shape or form, but they would be the first to tell you the players on that team is what they did on the field that day. I mean, what coach did for them throughout his life dwarfs what accomplishment was made on that field that day. It was the perfect ending to coach's story. It wasn't the perfect ending to any of the players story. They were just part of the team that was called to do that. And, you know, it was, it was magical. It was absolutely magical, and um, I'll never forget it. Those guys, that team was special, but, I mean, that coach is special. I I remember watching that game in my basement thinking, man, these guys have got to win this game. And they, they didn't make us wait very long for us to know that they were going to win that game. I believe they jumped out to an eight-run first inning, but uh, one thing that, that I've noticed, Dylan, through this interview, it almost seems like you and Coach Jink share similar stories but supported each other through your most difficult times. It seems that when you were going through your cancer struggles, he was there to support you and he had your back and he was your best advocate. And then it seems like when he got sick and and he had that stroke, you almost returned the favor to him and and did those same things. And it seems like it almost it almost came full circle just having this conversation. I could be completely wrong, but that's kind of the vibe I'm getting. And I kind of have an eerie, odd feeling right now, but it's 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 a good feeling and that's just me being an outsider hearing your story and insights from the program that that I'm I'm feeling right now when you shared with me that 
one of your greatest honors when you reached out to me about being on the show was you actually got to be a pallbearer at his funeral. Yeah, it was uh, it was a it was a special day. It was a sad day, um, but I think the reason why I had such a special relationship with Coach Jink was again my you know my my dad took his own life before I was born. But uh, my senior year, we were playing Marion down there, and I lost my grandfather who. Uh, was the one that really taught me the game and took me to Wrigley Field and things like that. Um, and it was in the middle of the doubleheader. My aunt, um, just to give you an idea, and people are shocked out here in Denver when I share this, but it's pretty common back home. Uh, being from the Deitmeyer family, my mom was the youngest of 12, and I'm one of 41 grandkids. So naturally, I had an aunt in Marion that was at the game that night, and uh, we knew that my grandpa was 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 on his last breath and we uh we won the first game and then we got word my mom came down to the dugout in between games and said that my grandfather was was going to pass that night and uh coach Jenk looks at me and he goes if you want to go go and uh I said no grandpa would want me to be here and so um yeah coach Jenk was that father figure for me in, in so many ways. When, uh, when I moved out to Denver the first time, I thought I was out of the woods with my cancer. And, uh, my first scan out here showed that the tumors in my liver were starting to grow again. And, uh, the first call, I'm not kidding you. The first call before I even called my mom was the coach Jenk. And he goes, well, uh, I'm glad I haven't started looking for a new assistant yet because you're going <laughs> to, you're going to, you're going to be able to coach next year. Right. And I said, Oh, well, if I'm still around, I'll be on the field. And, uh, you know, we laughed and chuckled about it, but it, I mean, this, his and I, my relationship have come full circle so many times. Um, even around speaking, you know, the first time I ever was asked to speak and share my story was for the relay for life in Dyersville. And, um, coach Jenk was the first person to give me a hug when I, you know, left, left the stage that night, um, after sharing my testimony for the first time. And, um, you know, he was just always, always there, always in my corner. And, uh, I think so many of the guys feel that way. It's like, when you know that someone's going to be in your corner, whether you win, lose, uh, or anything in between, you're playing with house money. There's, you know, because they're going to be there for you at the end of the day. And that's why family is so important to me. And that's why I treat each and every team that I've ever coached as a family, because, uh, you know, family never leaves anyone behind. And, and coach was the biggest advocate of that. He treated the, his returning all stater the same as he treated, you know, his eighth guy on the bench, each person on the team had a role and he made them feel important and, I'm not here to say that I was the best player to ever play the game of baseball. I certainly wasn't the best player for the Beckman team, and I wasn't even the best catcher to ever play for him. But, um, you know, he treated he treated me like royalty, and um, that's something that I think, going back to where we started this conversation, is each player, each person, each coach that ever competed against Tom Jenk Jr., 
is better off because of it. And he's treated the next person that towed the line, uh, across the, you know, on the other side of the field. Um, I believe better because of how coach Jenk competed against, you know, the, the teams that he went against. Dylan, it was great for you to share your memories and for us to honor coach Tom Jink Jr. And thank you for doing that. It'd be hard to do a podcast talking about Beckman baseball and not talk about its storied history. Six state championships, 18 trips to the state tournament, 28 district championships, 16 conference championships. Those are some amazing stats from an outstanding program. Dylan, when you think about Beckman baseball and the history of Beckman baseball, I know you did reach out to many guys from the Beckman community, and I thank you for doing your due diligence. I appreciate that. But who are some of the names that that come to mind? Who are some of the great players that have passed through the Beckman program over the years? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Coach Jink was was at the program for over 40 years, accumulated just under 1,100 wins. I think he finished with 1,088 uh, career wins. And so <laughs> to reach out and say, you know, what were the top five or um, even the starting nine is hard, especially when you're comparing across generations. But um, I'm just going to go buzz kind of right through the list. Um, I, I reached out to some of the old-time players who had seen a, a, a large gamut of, of the players that have come through the program and Really, there was a consensus five or seven in terms of the best ever. Um, best ever, I think pretty much everyone can agree, at least from a pitching standpoint, Tom Wegman ended up playing for the Mets. Um, Tim Bogey was a catcher, ended up going to Alabama. We've all heard stories of how great Ronnie Wedower was. Um, and then Tim Gassman and Dennis Yeager, uh, they played at Iowa and San Jacinto Junior College, respectively. And then um, kind of... In that five to seven area is where we uh, include Glenn Neighbor and Nick Ungs. And uh, I gave that top five list to Nick. And um, one of the things that I've uh, also picked up on throughout the program is, is, again, goes back to that humility. He goes, that top five list is spot on. You'd expect a player of Nick's caliber. And and maybe he was thinking it, but, um, you know, he's like, that top five list is solid. I can't. Can't say anything there, but uh, he's definitely in the conversation. Um, and then I also put together an all Beckman team from like 2000 to 2009. And so um, what we came up with there for infielders was Matt Tegler, Matt Ungs, Tony Cruzy, uh, Nick Oberding, and then behind the dish, either Nate Trum or Bo Ellingson. In the outfield, Corey Kleisner, Eric Reidinger, Tim McClyman, Dan Martin as a utility guy, Ryan Mabe as a DH, and then pitchers would be Luke Kelly and Sean Stelkin. And then more recently, um, what we came up with for an all-Beckman 2010 to 2019 uh, would be Lucas Jock behind the dish, infielders Eric D'Souza, Ian Ross, Nate Steger, Connor Klosterman in the outfield, uh, Robbie Onstetter, Mitch Steger, Riley Legrand, who's currently playing at Co, uh, Joel Vasky, who's at uh, was at Kirkwood this year, uh, Isaac Willenbring, Joey Lehman, and then Jackson Bennett, who's 
has plans to go to Michigan State next year. So I was I excited think, to see he was going to Michigan State. Yeah. I, uh, you know, just you always want to play the game out in your head who would win the 2000 to 2009 versus 2010 to 2019. And I think they'd probably go to a game seven, but you could say that probably about um, any teams that we put together. It might be one of those things where if they play 10 games, each team wins five. It was great hearing some of those names. I played, I shared before, perfect game. I think it's first year it was in existence. And we were the Dubuque County team. And I played with Tony Cruzy, who coached at Beckman. And then I believe he coached for Johnson uh, for a powerhouse for a while. And I also played with... uh, Tim McClyman and then also Dan Martin as well. I think there was a there was a Cooney as well that we played with. I can't remember, um, but there was a, a Hogan as well. Um, I, I can't remember some of the other names. What what uh, what did I crack you up with there? Uh, yeah, so funny story about Tony Cruzy. So um, the other thing I was going to say about Coach Jenk when you asked about what we lost, I think just anytime you talk about a great coach. Uh, you take a look at their coaching tree and see how much impact they've made just by the number of coaches that they've created underneath of them um, who have gone on to do great things impacting more lives. Um, But Tony Cruzy, so one of the years I was on the coaching staff, whoever was the helmet guy, so we had all these roles. The the freshman was the garbage guy, but we also had the helmet guy and and whatever, the balls guy, and um, everybody had the role. But the helmet guy... Going to the state tournament, forgot the helmets. We did not have helmets. And so we always would take BP down at one of the local schools, whether it was Dowling. Um, when Tony Cruzy was there, we would go to Johnston um, or wherever he was at. And I believe they had like purple helmets. And so if you look at some of the pictures from the state tournament that year, there's one game where we're wearing our Beckman uniforms with like purple helmets um and, and and that was the reason is he still coaching is he still at johnson i i he's one of those where i've tried to follow up with him i've tried to connect with him but i haven't been able to to get a hold of him do we know what he's up to these days is he still in the game of baseball i'm not sure but if i had to guess he's if he's not coaching a high school team he's probably uh to the point now where he's coaching his own kids but um, just pulling up a quick, uh, quick Google search. It looks like he's assistant, uh, assistant varsity football coach at, uh, yeah, he's still at Johnston. Very cool. You couldn't ask for a nicer guy. Couldn't ask for, for a, a nicer family as well. Uh, Dylan, before we end talking about Beckman history and, and players, anything that, you'd like to add anything you'd like to throw in about some of those greats that have come through before we uh, get into our closing time section of the show. Yeah, I think, you know, when you talk about 40 years, that, that is tradition. And to be able to, I think, get stronger as a program that year when coach Jenk wasn't in the dugout, um, just speaks volumes to that, uh, to the ability of coach Jenk, when, whenever you have a micromanager, the, the organization can't operate without that person because they're, they're micromanaging every activity. Coach Jenk was not that. And so for the tradition to be built, again, 
it empowers the players and there's so much passing of the torch and teaching at the player level, varsity guys teaching freshmen all the way down the line to where when you get to varsity, it's expected of you to do the same. And so I think there's so many lessons that I learned from Coach Jenk uh, from 21 outs, valuing what's important to, you know, tradition always wins, uh, teaching us the difference between uh, pain and injury, one you play through, one you don't. Um, the other thing that I just, anytime I, I talk to someone who competed against us, uh, was that you, you never wanted to play Beckman at the end of the year. And I think one of the things that played into that was coach would always err on the side of the upperclassmen early on in the season. The upperclassmen had to lose the job for the underclassmen to take it over. And so he would almost uh, uh, sacrifice wins early on for these position battles to play out. And and so um, that is why for in so many years you look back and like you watch us in the first quarter of the season and we're just real bad, booting the ball around, walking people, all of it. And then in the end of the year, no one can touch us. And it's like, how does that happen? And I think there's so much of the little things that he did, but one of them was just letting those position battles play out instead of playing one guy and just rolling with it. You know, let the performance speak for itself and may the best guy win. And uh, I think that strengthens the team as a whole. Um, And then going back to, you know, uh, how do you want to be remembered? When it comes to to tradition – he always made it clear that the present team does not own the tradition. The previous teams do. Again, it goes for goes back to that. You're playing for every person that's ever worn the jersey. You're just the next brick in the wall that's building this wall of Beckman baseball tradition. But what's been built before has come before you. Um, and so, it, again, it teaches you that ownership concept of the little things lead up to the big things. Um, and then the last, lastly, I just want to reiterate, you know, um, he always made it a point to say that this is your season. It is what you make it. Let's make the best of it. Dylan, thanks for coming on and sharing your experiences here and giving us a lot of background on coach Jink. We had a great opportunity. We had a great time reflecting and, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, honoring him and then also talking about some of the history of Beckman baseball. I know Dylan knows this because he listens to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. Whenever you hear Mariano Rivera's Enter Sandman come on, you know that we are entering the closing time section of the show, meaning that the episode is going to come to an end. We know when we hear Mariano Rivera's music in the background, the podcast is coming to an end, just like the game did when he entered. Stick around for closing time. It's become tradition here at the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast that whenever we have a 
guest on. We always give them the last minute or so of the episode and give them a cheesy baseball-related nickname. So we are going to enter a safe situation with Slattery. So Dylan, go ahead and use this time to tell us anything that you'd like to tell us before we end the show. Yeah, I think, you know, to sum it all up, whether I'm speaking, podcasting, or coaching, um, one thing always comes to mind that that coach used to say, and it's don't let the fear of striking out keep you from stepping in the box. Uh, So often in life, we can get paralyzed by the fear of what might be, and we let the present moment slip by. So regardless of where you find yourself, whether you're uh, a young player trying to become the best that you can be or wherever you find yourself in your professional life, Don't let the complacency of the current moment or the fear of striking out and taking yourself to the next level uh, keep you where you're at. Go after it. um, Set your goals at that uh, state championship tradition of greatness level and just go after it. Dylan, thanks for sharing your story. It's been awesome having you on the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. We're going to end the show with a minute with Manaman. Listeners, if you did not get inspired listening to Dylan's story, you should. We, we've talked about the line from the final season, how do you want to be remembered? I, I can tell you that Dylan could have taken the easy way out. He, uh, he battled cancer twice had to grow up with his father not not being in his life. If you listen to his podcast, which is called Stage 4, Onto the Stage, which I recommend, you will hear a story about him being in an automobile accident where everybody in the car lost their life except for him. Now, he could have taken the easy way out. He could have turned to drugs. He could have turned to alcohol. He could have used all of those excuses that I often hear people make when they have problems in their life. He didn't do that. And neither should you. How do you want to be remembered? I know how Dylan wants to be remembered. I know how I want to be remembered. Hopefully, uh, this podcast changes some of your ways that you remember me, but how do you want to be remembered? Think about that. When you move forward and you pass on, what do you want people to say about you? We talked for an hour and 20 minutes. Coach Jink, holy cow, how has that guy been remembered? I think of all of the lives, the thousands of lives that he's touched. And wow, does he have a great story. But not only does he have a great story, he has the respect and the love of so many people all over this community. I would say all over the United States. How do you want to be remembered is a great tagline to have in moving forward. It's easy to take the easy way out. 
It's easy to make excuses. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to look at yourself in the mirror, realize that the person you're looking at isn't somebody that you're proud of, and make those honest, hard changes. How do you want to be remembered? And just like that, 643, we're out of here. Post game show is brought to you by. Christ, I can't find it. The hell with it. Thank you for listening to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. You can find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram by searching Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at Coach Manaman. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review, find us on Spotify, and subscribe.